Pardon this. Uh, am I too loud? Oh, we have a sound man. That was your part in this presentation. This is a, a pleasure for me uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I've missed you folks. You have been away for a while. May wish you were still away. Incidentally, the first time I heard uh, Dr. Montgomery, I was a fledgling apologetic student. I heard him via tape. That's about as good as we're going to get it. I heard him via tape, and I was so thankful for him. And really, believe me, folks, his vocabulary, I, I couldn't relate to his vocabulary. In fact, just the other, the other day I saw him, and he had a little bit of cold, or he was coughing a little bit, and I, I asked him if he had a cold, and he said, uh, precisely, as a matter of fact, last night my physician administered an intramuscular aqueous suspension of procaine penicillin in conjunction with the hydroxyptomycin. And I said, you mean he gave you a shot? And he said, precisely. <laughs> No, I lied to you. We didn't have that conversation. But I, re I remember talking to Dr. Montgomery, or listening to Dr. Montgomery on the tapes. And one thing that went through my mind, even though I couldn't understand all of what he was saying, I was so thankful for him because he could minister to the people that I couldn't even communicate with. And so I can understand his frustration, at least in part, because he is administering or ministering to people who are somewhere up there in, in realms of, of intellectual uh, interaction that perhaps we may never enter. And then for him to come here, not that we're stupid, but we're different than what he is used to communicate. You read, you're reading his books, you know to whom he communicates. And uh, my goal is to be able to understand what he has to say. And uh, that will take a while because we're from different schools. I'm from the school of unintelligent gibberish, and he is from the philosophically oriented apologetic Simon Greenleaf School of Theology, and that's a very important, significant place. And also be encouraged because we do, and this is just between us, all right, we do have and maintain the prerogative of curving your grades, even after a professor has submitted them. All right, so please don't be, and I know that Dr. MacArthur is concerned about that. In fact, he, he asked me last night my reaction to some of your reactions, and I, I told him what I felt, and he said we need to help the students succeed. So please, be, be faithful. And the admonition that has already been given to you is a good admonition and an appropriate one. You know, I said that I'd missed you, and I have missed you. Uh, I don't know all of you, and we haven't all been together in class, but most of us have been together in class. And let's face it, I'm a teacher, and a teacher without students just isn't the most productive person in the kingdom of God. And so for you to return is a great blessing to guys like me who have been working as diligently as time would allow me to work and the rest of us in preparing things to, to communicate to you later on after you get past this week. And we're looking forward to that. But I have to admit, I, I am glad to see you and have missed you for another reason. I have been preparing an exam on Pauline epistles. Now, that will not thrill your heart. I know it won't thrill your hearts, because the last thing you need right now is the anticipation of another exam. But an examination is very interesting from the, the teacher's perspective. And some of you perhaps have written examinations or, or quizzes. And when you're dealing with questions and attempting to communicate a thought through a question to get the proper response, and believe it or not, we don't try to trick you. I mean, sometimes we do, um, but that isn't an intent. Uh, I mean, Jack Reagan may intentionally trick you, but I would never do that. 
But anyway, that's in working through that examination, a hundred questions on the Pauline epistles. Now, there are a lot of Pauline epistles, but a hundred questions, concise, clear, typically McBride questions. So you have absolutely no doubt as to what I want from you. Those are difficult to come up with. But I did it. You see? And uh, copies were on sale. No. But um, this whole thing, and you, you that know me know that I tend to kind of wander in my thinking. And I started getting off on this whole philosophy and theology of questions. Um, questions are very interesting. For example, we bought a home just about two years ago, and in a matter of a three-page questionnaire, three pages, that finance company knew our family history, our financial history, our current financial status, and our future goals. It's amazing the, the questions become the key to unlocking the door to other people, assuming you get answers, of course. Questions are very interesting. Some questions can be very intimidating, like the question that nobody has ever asked you, but I'm going to ask you now. Do you still cheat on exams? You see, now that's entrapping you because there's no way to, uh, yes, no, give it an answer. You know, it still implies that you do. It's like asking the man, do you still beat your wife? Uh, entrapping. But most questions are aimed at, at soliciting or eliciting responses that allows some kind of flow of communication from one individual to another. Now, I share all of that with you because in looking at the scripture, questions themselves become very, very interesting. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples. This is a, this is a Bible trivia question, all right? And we'll grade it on a curve, all right? What is the first question in the Bible? You don't know? You're not prepared? I know because I prepared this thing. The first question in the Bible, interestingly enough, is this. Has God truly said that you shall not die? Did you get it right? Did somebody get it? That is an interesting question. And you know, that question reveals the attitude of the one asking the question. And there is deceit and there's rebellion. And you know, that's Genesis 1, Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Satan himself, through the serpent, deceiving Eve. Or setting her up. Now contrast that with a question such as this. Psalms 8.4. Just listen. What is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? Now you see in that very question, without an answer, the question itself reveals a heart of submission, a heart of worship, a heart of humility, a heart set upon God himself and his majesty. Just a question without an answer. And it's very interesting, from time to time, Dr. MacArthur has question and answer times, and perhaps he'll do it with you, and has done it with you, but at the church, he'll do it quite often. And I have heard people leave those question and answer sessions and say to one another, I really learned a lot tonight. I learned a lot about John, I learned a lot about the Bible, I learned a lot about Grace Church. It was a very productive evening. And then we huddle as a staff on Tuesday mornings, and our conversation goes something like this. Boy, we really learned a lot about the congregation, the questions that they asked. Because you see, the questions themselves tell a lot about where somebody is. Now, why am I saying all of that? Simply to bring you to consider this, another Bible trivia question. This is harder because it calls for a value judgment. What would you suppose is the most important question in the Bible? Now, of course, we can come up with 25 different answers or more, and they may all be right because it's a value judgment. I have to believe that one of the most important, if not the important question in the Bible, is found in, you need to turn to it, but Matthew 16, Jesus entering into the area of Caesarea Philippi, and he says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? 
I say, well, some of them say you were John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, some Elijah, some the prophet, some say other things. And then Jesus asked this question, and this is it. Who do you say that I am? Now, I have to believe that that's the most important question in the Bible, at least in its implications. Who do you say that I am? Now, we have all answered that. And generally, we would affirm, although maybe not all of us would, but generally, we would affirm that that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. And we could go on, if our Christology is right, and give a whole series of responses to to who Jesus Christ is. What I would like you to see, and if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, I want you to see Paul's response to that question. And then I would like us to build upon this for just a few minutes. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now you're familiar with this passage. Paul is talking about unity and harmony in the church. And there was very little, but there was some disunity and lack of harmony in the Philippian church. Now, generally, this church was a very godly church. They loved Paul. They ministered to him financially. They sent Epaphroditus to him to minister to him while he was in prison in Rome. They were concerned for Paul. They were concerned for Epaphroditus. And Paul was concerned for them as well. So there was a mutual interaction here. Perhaps the book of Philippians, if you want to see the heart of Paul, you can see it best in the book of Philippians. Now, he shows it in several of his epistles, but Philippians is just a very, very insightful passage into Paul's heart. Chapter 2, he's talking about unity. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, and so on, then he says, here's your example. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that, here it is, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we affirm as Christians, and this... this uh, School affirms that Jesus Christ is Lord, the sovereign one that created and rules over his creation. And that he is worthy of the worship of all of his creation. Now Paul is saying that someday, and we believe it to be yet future, every knee will be compelled to bow by the sheer majesty of Christ and his presence before them. And every tongue will be compelled to confess that Jesus Christ is exactly who he is, Lord. To the glory of God the Father. But you see, we have the insight by the Spirit of God to know that now. And not only know it, but to affirm it, and to affirm it by the commitment of our lives. We affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the next question, so what? What difference does it make? Because we're not talking about some kind of a theological position to be preached, although it is that. But we're talking about a commitment to be lived out in our lives. So what difference does it make if we affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord? Now, that's another important question. Paul goes on to give some implications of that Lordship. And this is what I want us to see together. And just follow along. Jot any notes you'd like to jot that might be helpful to you. And as I thought through this in relationship to you 
And our situation here, tried to think, think of how Paul would be ministering to us and how the Word of God would minister to us. And I believe this is very, very relevant to what we are going through as a student body, as a staff, just all of the events of life. What difference does it really make to you and to me if Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, Paul begins, look at verse 12. Paul says, so then, my beloved. Well, so then, so what? What's he talking about? He's referring back to what he has just affirmed. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me give you one of the first implications here. I put it on the overhead so perhaps you can follow just a little bit better. And I'll explain what I mean by this. The first implication is, as I see it in the passage, to affirm the Lordship of Christ implies our cooperation with the work of God within us. Now, this is the encouraging part as far as I'm concerned. Our cooperation with the work of God within us. And this whole passage is really twofold. And I'll give give you the outline so you can follow through. First of all, our part. Paul really gives three aspects here. Now, listen to this. This is our part in this cooperative. And what a cooperation simply means is working together with somebody else to, to achieve a mutual goal. And that's my own off-the-cuff definition of cooperation. But I think it'll suffice for this purpose. To work together with somebody else to achieve a mutual goal. Now, what's the mutual goal? Christ-likeness, to to present everybody complete, mature in Christ. So we are working together with God to achieve that goal. That's the whole purpose of what Paul is saying here. So if we affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord, this is one of the implications that we will cooperate in that process of maturity. And this is what Paul says. So then, verse 12, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now take a look at this. What is our part in this cooperative effort with God? First of all, Paul mentions appropriate motives. He says, now listen, folks, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that points right at motives. We can see if Paul was with them and while he was with them, they were being obedient. That's what he says. But now he is away from them. What are they to do? Paul says, now much more prove that what God is doing in you is real. Continue in obedience. Grow in obedience. Now you know what that's like. How do you behave when you're away from the accountability of the student body? How do I behave when I'm away from the accountability of the church staff or the school staff? I think it was Moody that said that true integrity in a person is measured by how that person acts when they think they're alone. And there's some truth in that. And Paul is saying, now I'm no longer with you, so now much more be diligent to be obedient. How did you behave when you were on vacation away from accountability? Don't answer that to me, just answer it to the Lord. Because that says something about who we are. And Paul is saying, now that I'm away from you, be much more diligent to, to be obedient. Proper motives. I mean, we work with our, our son is 14 now. He has internalized many of the values of our family. And that's a real joy to my wife and I. Internalize standards. That's one of the things we do with you. That's one of the things the Lord does with all of us. To help us internalize the standard. Because we won't always have accountability. Accountability is important, but it won't always be there. And if we fall apart spiritually and morally when accountability is not present, then that means we're immature and we have a real serious problem. 
And perhaps there are times when we do that. Paul is saying, don't do that. Be consistent. Have the proper motives. Have the proper motives. Then he goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I see some attitudes here. Fear and trembling. What is fear and trembling? Well, in the presence of God, it is an attitude of respect. It is an attitude of awe. It's an attitude of submission. It's an attitude of humility. God is God, and I am His creation, and I had better understand that. Because you see, at the heart of all rebellion is trying to usurp God's role. Improper attitudes and improper motives. So Paul says, whatever we're going to do, let's do it with the proper motives and the proper attitudes. Well, what is it he's calling us to do? Appropriate actions. This is all our part to cultivate these things. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I cannot tell you how much misunderstanding has grown out of attempting to, to explain what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'm from an Armenian background. Now, that's not a nationality. That's a theological persuasion, as you will find out in your Doctrine of Salvation course if you don't know yet. James, or Jacob, James Arminius, believed and taught that one could, in fact, lose their salvation after they were genuinely saved. And I've been taught all of my life that this passage, if it doesn't specifically state it, at least it implies that we must work to maintain our salvation. It doesn't say that at all. And I've heard people say that it means you have to work, and cults will say this, work to gain your salvation. He doesn't say work towards your salvation. He doesn't say work to maintain your salvation. He says very simply, work out. Ek. It's a very simple Greek word. It means out. It, it doesn't mean anything else. It means out. Work out your salvation. But what does that mean? You see, these folks are believers. The, the epistle is written to the saints at Philippi. I hope they're believers. I, I really doubt if Paul was wrong in that regard. Work out your salvation. Let me appeal to higher mathematics to help, help us understand. I mean, for me, it's higher mathematics. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, that's not real difficult. But you know what we just did? We, and, and, and this is consistent with the sense of the passage, we worked out that problem. 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know what it means? It simply means bring to completion, bring to maturity. What God has begun in you, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, He will in fact mature, but He will not do it apart from our cooperative effort. That's what He's saying. Bring to maturity what God has begun in you. James says it this way, you're going to show me your faith without works? Try it. I'll show you my faith by works. In my life will be produced the fruit of true faith. The same application here. And Paul knows that. So he says, with the proper motives, with the proper attitudes, with the proper actions, work out your salvation. Bring it to maturity. You know what that implies? That apart from our effort, now listen carefully, I don't want you to misunderstand. Apart from our cooperative effort with God, we will never be spiritually mature. You may not be familiar with it, but 40, 50 years ago, there was a whole theological movement called the Quietistic Movement. And you can still read Hannah Whittle Smith's um, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, uh, many, many of the turn-of-the-century saints. And they were saints. Taught Quietistic Theology. And it's just to let go, let God kind of flop on the spirit, and, and, and it's God's going to do it instead of us, not through us. But see, the Bible teaches transformation. The Bible teaches a cooperative effort. 
It is not quietistic. It isn't just, well, I'm going to sit back and pray and wait for God to do something. Now, there are times when we need to do that. But now when it comes to our maturity, Paul is saying, work, do it. Cooperate with God. Now, this is the other part. The second half of that, God's part. Our part, appropriate motives, appropriate attitudes, appropriate actions. Now, what is God's part? Verse 13. For it is God, now that isn't God the Father, although it would imply the triune God working within us, particularly though the person of the Spirit, but Paul uses simply theos, God, no definite article, just theos. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this is the balance, folks. Paul says in verse 12, or verse 13 could have come before verse Verse 12, but he reverses the order to make the impact. God is at work in you both to what? To will? Proper motives. To work? Proper actions. For his good pleasure. Proper attitudes. You see, what's that? Paul is saying that within you is the divine seed that brings about attitudes, actions, and motives. Therefore, what we are called upon to do is to cultivate that reality. See, this isn't legalism. This isn't working for our salvation. This is working out our salvation. The reality of the life of God within us being manifested in, in what we do. Now, that should bring a measure of comfort to us. I would certainly hope it does. Because the reality is that God never asks us to do something that he hasn't already empowered us to do. You understand that? God will never ask of you something that he hasn't already equipped and empowered you to do. Now, people may ask of you something. We may ask of you something that you are not able to do. Most likely, you will ask of yourselves things that are far beyond your ability at this point if you have high standards. But God will never do that. Because what he asks of us, he will empower us to accomplish. You see, when our son was born... We could take him home from the hospital, and in fact we did. We could nurture him for 14 years, and in fact we did. And let's say just hypothetically when he was 10 years old, I said to Jamie, Jamie, you're 10 years old now. We've given you the first 10 years of your life, the best 10 years of our life. Now go out and, and earn your living and make your own way in life. We're through with you. Be gone. And he could rightly say, I don't have the resources. I can't do that. How do you expect me to support myself? How do you expect me to get along? I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the experience, and so on. God will never say that to us. It isn't as if he brings us into the kingdom and then says, I brought you into the kingdom, you have new life in Christ, now be gone. I'll see you at the other end, and we'll kind of check the tally sheet and see how you did. Never happened. God works through us every step of the way. So that when you reach an impossibility, and I know, and I don't want to over-dramatize the situation or overstate it, but I know that some of you are struggling very, very hard with the current class that you're taking. I mean, intercession, we call them intercession at seminar, on the seminary level, but winterums are difficult at best. You have two unit, is it a two unit course? Two-unit course? Anyway, you, you have a semester course condensed into two weeks, and that in and of itself is absurd. I don't mean we shouldn't do it. I mean it's just very, very difficult. You just set aside the rest of life. But you can't do that. So it causes some great tension. 
But the promise of the word is God is that God is working within us to empower us to do even in the midst of this. And believe me, folks, as you know, there are much more serious situations in life than what you're going through right now with this class. However, even in this situation, God is empowering us to be people of integrity, as we've already been admonished to do. Now, I don't, I don't say that as an admonition. I just say that as a word of encouragement because it's true. Our cooperation with the work of God. Now, a couple of other things I want to share with you with regard to what Paul is saying here. And this is the second thing. We go to what? Whenever I'm through talking, but what's the cutoff? About quarter after-ish? Something like that? A little bit before that? Okay. The second implication in this passage, our communication of the Word of God to those around us. Now, this is not profound. Now, Paul gives it in a very, I think, unique way. But communicating the Word of God to those around us is not in and of itself anything new to us. That's what we've been called to do. That's what we've been redeemed to do. However, look at the way Paul deals with this. Beginning at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. <clears throat> yes. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. Now let's stop there. In this section, I see two elements that I want you to want to point out to you. First of all, a priority. What is the priority? What are we all about? Verse 16, the first part of that, holding fast the word of life. Now, some people, some translations give, give that the rendering, holding forth the word of life. Now, what does that mean? It's a very interesting phrase. And in Greek culture, that same phrase was used of offering a cup of wine to a guest, to a house guest. It is a gracious act of giving. And yet it's far more than that here. Paul is saying that we are called, and it's our responsibility, to hold forth or to hold fast the word of life. Now, what is the word of life? Is it the word incarnate? The Logos, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, it is that. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Well, is it the gospel? Well, yes, it is that too. It is the inscripturated word or the gospel itself. I learned that word from Dr. Montgomery. In scripture, it's written in the Bible. But it is all of that. You see, let me ask you, what do you have? And people struggle with this. What do you have to offer to the world? And some people say, I don't, I've heard people say that. My own mother said that to me. When she came to the Lord later in life, and she said, I don't have anything to offer. Mom, who, how did the world begin when God created it? What is your purpose in life to bring glory to God? Do you know that most people will go through life and never know that? And will expend enormous amounts of energy and money and, and time trying to discover the purpose of life. And will become PhDs and whatever else and never really know what that's all about. And you know something? You know that. And you have that to offer to a dying world. That is an incredible investment. You see, holding fast the word of life. And that's what we're all about. Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand all that Dr. Montgomery is saying. I don't understand all that McBride is saying. I don't understand. It doesn't matter what you don't understand. What you do understand is that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tell the world that. That's what they need to know. Oh, but they won't listen to me. You know, one of the greatest joys of apologetics, and believe me, there's more to apologetics than what you're hearing now, much more. But he can't give it all to you. I mean, he's having trouble enough giving you what, you what you're getting. But there's much more to that. The first apologetic message I ever heard was a tape on the resurrection by Josh McDowell. You know what that tape did to me? It just lifted a burden. And I was almost 30 years old when I heard that. 
And for the first time, this is going to sound bizarre to you, but for the first time in my life, I realized that the truth of Christianity did not depend upon me. All of my years in high school, all of my years fumbling through college and in the service and, and on and on it went, I really felt, and I never really analyzed it, but I felt that why should anybody want to know my Lord? Why should anybody want to be like me? And I, and I was carrying the burden of somehow validating or verifying the truth of Christianity. And I couldn't do that. Because, you know, if I didn't believe Christianity, that wouldn't make it any less true. And the fact that we all believe it doesn't make it true. I mean, it's either true or it isn't true. That's the objective nature that Dr. Montgomery has been sharing with you. Christianity is objectively true. And if the whole world is in disbelief, that doesn't make it false. And the first time I realized that was because of the fact of the resurrection. And, and I no longer had to say to somebody, you must believe in Jesus because I believe in Jesus. And for years, that's what I thought I had to say. I look at me and nobody wanted to be like me. Or why should they be like me? But believe in Jesus because he deserves your worship, because he's true. I, that, to me, that just opened up a whole spectrum of Christianity that I had never realized before. Incredible. And it turned on a light. And that's the joy of apologetics. But Paul is saying, there's a priority. Hold forth the word of life. Now, what's the proof? The proof is doing things without grumbling or disputing so that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. I think of this illustration. You know what a prism is? Not a prison behind bars, but a prism. Now, if I remember basic science 101, a prism somehow, and I don't know how it works, some of you will know, but the pure light from the sun hits a prism and is refracted into its component colors. Pure light from the sun, which seems colorless, hits a prism and somehow is refracted into, into its component colors. Now, when that happens in the atmosphere after a rain, what do we call it? A rainbow. Gorgeous. What's happening? Pure light is being refracted by whatever's in the atmosphere, the moisture in the atmosphere, I guess. See? And what Paul is saying in a sense, now, now get this. When, and I'll use this phrase, it, it, it isn't, it's consistent with the context, but it isn't in the context. When the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ hits our lives, it is refracted into its component parts. What are some of the component parts of the gospel in the life of a believer? Well, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. What is that? That's contentment. Contentment. People look at us and see that we're content in life. That is one of the refracted components of the gospel of Christ. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God. We are God's ultimate apologetic. And it doesn't under matter if we understand what's going on in Winterham. It doesn't really matter in that sense if we can understand the books we're reading. What matters is if people can see our lives and see the glorious gospel of Christ refracted in our attitudes and our actions, the things we do, the things we say, our perception of life itself. We are God's apologetic that you may prove to be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, holding fast the word of life. Therefore, what we have to offer means something to people. Now, we can go into a lot of exposition, but I'm not going to do that just for the sake of time. But if you just can grab onto that illustration of the refraction of the glory of the gospel in your lives, we are God's apologetic. Most of the people that talk to us about Christianity are really searching for something, and they may feel that we have it. And that's where we're going to make the most 
imprint in their lives. Now, they may have some arguments that can be silenced through apologetics, but our lives are going to be the ultimate apologetic. Now, finally, just very briefly, the last section here. And I share this with you just because it has, it has been the source, or at least the catalyst, for a very precious experience in my life. And, I mean, primarily because it's in the Word of God, but I want to share it with you in this context. Verse 16. The implications of the Lordship of Christ that we confirm, or the confirmation of the servants of God. You see, the cooperation with the work of God within us, the communication of the Word of God to those around us, and then the confirmation of the servants of God, those who have ministered to us. And how are we going to do that? Through our faithfulness and through our joyfulness. Paul says this, verse 16, Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now listen, folks. Our faithfulness. Do you know why I want to succeed in the ministry? And by succeed, I mean being faithful. There are a number of reasons, but let me share a couple with you. One reason is because of a Salvation Army officer who is just about to go and be with the Lord. He's very elderly right now. Now, some of you, most of you know I'm from a Salvation Army background. When I was about 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, the joyful years, there was a Salvation Army officer. I cannot tell you one thing he said from the pulpit because he was not, he preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I can't remember a thing he said. But what I do remember is he was there when I needed him. My parents were splitting up. They were getting a divorce. And he was there when I needed somebody. And he tracked me through those years. And it wasn't until recent years that I really realized the impact of his ministry on my life. And when I first studied through this passage, I took the time, I set the scripture aside, and I took out a piece of paper and I wrote a note. And his name is, is Brigadier. You've never heard of a Brigadier, I guess, but in this old, old Salvation Army ranks, a Brigadier, there was a Lieutenant, there was a Captain, there was a Major, there was a Brigadier, and then there was a Colonel. And this man was a Brigadier. Brigadier Crombie. I said, Dear Brigadier Crombie. As something to the effect, I want to thank you for your faithfulness in ministering to me. And I want to be faithful in the ministry so that when you stand before the Lord, your ministry will be affirmed because of my faithfulness. That's what Paul is saying here. I don't want that man to have run in vain, nor toiled in vain, in my case. I can say the same thing about Dr. MacArthur. When, when I was drowning in a sea of, of lousy theology, it was the Lord through John's tapes that brought me into an understanding of the Word of God. And I want to be faithful to the ministry so that His ministry will be affirmed. Now, I don't for a minute think that I'm the only one that's going to affirm that, but I'm a part of it. And if I fail in the ministry, if I bail out of the ministry, or if I sin and just cancel my own effectiveness, He is going to be impacted. I mean, besides having a broken heart, in some way it's going to reflect on the faithfulness of his ministry. And I don't want that to happen in a negative way. And that applies to you folks too. Why should you succeed here? One reason is because there are people who are praying for you. And I don't mean you get good grades. I mean succeed in attitudes and actions and motives. Why should you succeed? Because there are people who have invested their lives in you. You can point them out. You can name them. You might even want to go back today when you have time and drop them a note. Say, thank you for being faithful and ministering to me. And you have no idea how much that will encourage them. It'll just, it'll brighten their day. Brigadier Crombie wrote back to me and said at that time, he just found out his wife had, had cancer. She wouldn't long be with him. She's still living. And this was probably three years ago. The Lord has spared her. Very dear lady. But he said, your note was so encouraging to me, I, I wept. And I'm not trying to over-dramatize it. That's exactly what he said. It brought tears to my eyes. 
And I was so thankful. And you can do that to somebody else. But see, there are people who count on us, and we affirm their ministry. So the confirmation of the servants of God through our faithfulness, and then finally Paul mentions joyfulness. And he does it in an interesting context. He said, even though I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and you maybe remember, and maybe you won't, but from, uh, from the Pentateuch, there, there would quite often be an offering of a lamb, which was the major offering, and then the minor offering, or the libation, or the drink offering, would be poured out upon the altar. Paul is saying, in comparison to your faithfulness, I am the minor offering, and if my life is being poured out, that's fine with me. Second Timothy said the same thing, and at that point, he was, he was going to die. And that was his perspective. What mattered to him is that his disciples were faithful. So what does it mean, the implications of the Lordship of Christ? Well, at least three things. That we cooperate with the work of God within us through proper motives, through proper attitudes, through proper actions. That we communicate by the quality of our lives and, of course, by our words as well, the, the word of God to those around us. And that we take the time and consideration through our lives, through our faithfulness, through our joyfulness in the ministry, and even through a note, to confirm and validate the ministry of the servants of God to us. There are three very important areas, and we could spend much, much time on them, but we won't. In fact, at this point, we will pray. But I trust that this will be encouraging to you, because we all need to be encouraged. And there are those who are praying for us that would be encouraged by perhaps a note from us today. A great thing to do.